off the top, we got two things I wanted to make mention of. The first is related to uh, Sojourn Kids. So we have opened up Sojourn Kids for kindergarten. Uh, and so that's happening right now. If you have a kindergartner and they want to be a part of that, you can uh, send them downstairs, and uh, we have that for them. Uh, fourth and fifth will be happening uh, between our two gatherings, between uh, the 9 and 11 a.m. And then our first through third grade will be launching the uh, beginning of May. So that's the game plan for us as we move forward with our Sojourn Kids ministry. And then New City Catechism, we go through this week in and week out. This is a uh, a time to remember the resource that we're wanting to provide for our families um, when it comes to helping you guys be able to guide your, your kiddos when it comes to faith. And so this one's a good one. Um, not that they're not all good, but this one's a good one. Um, and so I'm going to ask the question. You guys are going to answer. That's how we roll. Um, and then, again, this question, this answers to help you maybe have a dialogue with your kids over breakfast or dinner. Um, in the upcoming week. And so this is question 29. And it says this, how can we be saved? And again, it's been going through this storyline over these last several weeks. Answer, let's read it together. Only by faith in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary atoning death on the cross. One more time. Question, how can we be saved? Answer, only by faith in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary atoning death on the cross. And we have hope. We have hope in a relationship with God through his provision in Jesus. And so let this remind you as you chat with your kids this week about this, that you have been saved not by your works, not by your good merit, not by your resume, but by Jesus. And we stand on that as a community. Uh, Man, I'm thrilled this week to start a new series. If you didn't catch it in the email, um, we are, we've been brewing on this idea of gospel human flourishing for the last several, uh, I would say maybe a year, year and a half now. And uh, this is uh, kind of laying out a vision of, of uh, helping us see what it looks like to see the gospel motivate us to see human flourishing in our community. I'm not going to get too far into the weeds because Zach is going to be preaching this morning. Uh, so I'm going to let him run with it. Y'all give it up for Zach as he comes up. The crowd, the crowd went wild. I've Those never, wild. I've never gotten that, Zach. That's that's you, man. Uh, and I wanna, I wanna pray for Zach and pray for us. I would encourage you as we get into this series, be praying that God would move on our hearts. Uh, I'm praying that this would 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 motivate us to have a a healthier view of what it looks like to see human flourishing in our community. Let me pray. Um, Father, thank you for Zach. Um, thank you for this uh, conversation around gospel human flourishing. God, we want to be a people who don't submit to political parties, who don't submit to the ways of this world, but submit to the kingdom of Jesus. And so I pray that you would guide us. You would guide us through your word, by your spirit. Let us be a people who follow Jesus. Walk with him, be with him, uh, becoming like him and doing what he did. So guide us, guide Zach this morning. Minister to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ernie. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm excited to kick off this series for us. Before uh, I get into kind of the meat of my sermon today, I think it's helpful to just take time to stop and uh, define what is human flourishing, right? What is human flourishing as seen through the lens of the gospel? Because I think that when we hear this phrase, um, we can be kind of individualistic in our worldview and how we see things. And so, Maybe when you hear human flourishing, you think, you know, your own personal thriving, 
And I think that uh, as Christians, sometimes if we're not careful, we can kind of lean into this, not this full prosperity gospel, but almost a shadow prosperity gospel of, man, if I follow Jesus and if I do what he says, um, he will give me the promotion that I want or he'll give me the the uh, dream house that I want that he'll keep me uh, healthy and my family healthy. And that's not what we're talking about. When we talk about human flourishing as seen through the gospel, I want us to carry kind of two pictures in our mind. The first is the life of Jesus, that Jesus came to earth. He was fully God, right? He was all powerful. And yet we see him not use that power and that privilege and that position for his own good and his own personal quote-unquote thriving. Rather, we see him uh, lay down his life for the flourishing of humanity. When he started his ministry, this is what he said. He, He was quoting the prophet Isaiah, and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this idea of human flourishing we see in Jesus. We see God laying down his life to to lift others up. We see him going to the dregs of society. We see him going to lepers. We see him going to uh, the demon-possessed, and we see him bringing healing. We see him using his position to elevate women in his society. And so as we talk about this, there's a few things we're going to talk about. Human flourishing is, is kind of like uh, a diamond, and as we turn it, there's different facets that we're going to look at. So we're going to look at what does it mean to seek justice for those who are oppressed around us. We're going to talk about... Um, What does it mean to live as sojourners in a land that's not our home? And that's kind of the, when we hear human flourishing, the second thing I want us to kind of think about and hold in our mind is this verse that we hear in Jeremiah 29, 7. And here we have this unique verse uh, in this unique circumstance where Israel disobeys God and rebels against him. They're not living up to the covenant that they agreed to with God. And then God sends them into exile, into Babylon, right? He takes them out of their homes and brings them into exile. And he tells them this, to just, well, let me, let me quote it. He says, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. That's the picture of gospel human flourishing that we want to talk about. That though we are exiles here, that though we are citizens of a coming country, the new Jerusalem, we are still called to seek the welfare of this city, to seek the welfare of the place where God has set our feet. So this is us, right? We're sojourners, we're exiles, we're citizens of the new Jerusalem, but there's still a call to engage the here and now. The call of the Christian life isn't just to sit back and to wait for, you know, death or the new Jerusalem. 
It's to make better where God has placed us and to engage in the betterment of humanity here and now. But today I want to take a look, right, as I'm casting out where we're going over the next few weeks, today I want to take a look at what I think is one of the foundations uh, in Scripture of human flourishing, and it's the biblical command to work and to labor. And we're going to see, as we open the scripture, that there are two things that work does to cause human flourishing. The first is this personal, um, this personal dignity that work brings. We're going to see that God, when he created man, he actually created and intended man to work. And then the second thing is we're going to look at uh, the redeemed and gospel-centric view of work, that it's partnering with God to bring about human flourishing. So if you have your Bibles, we'll open to Genesis 1 as we hop in today. Now what I want us to do, we can all probably quote Genesis 1.1, right? For in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want us to, um, you know, when we get familiar with something, when we get comfortable with something, we can kind of check out. So what I want to challenge us to do today is focus on this and pretend like we haven't heard the rest of this right here, right? Let's just take a look at Genesis 1-1, kind of with a fresh lens. If you need to close your eyes, you can do so. So Genesis 1-1, right in the very beginning of scripture, we see first page, first chapter, first verse. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So if you're reading this for the first time, I think there's two important things that this verse shows us. The first is, in the beginning, God. So God was in the beginning. God is eternal. He existed. He always existed. He always will exist. That the beginning has its beginning in him. And then the second word is, is this, or the word that follows it is this, God created. And so it tells us something about God. We open this and we see that in the very beginning, there is a God who's eternal, and this God is at work. Now this word, created, uh, Victor Hamilton, he's an Old Testament scholar, and he defines this word created in this way. He says, It means skilled labor, work that is performed by a craftsman or an artisan. Such is the measure of the finesse and professional skills of God's work. So when we hear this word, this phrase, God created, maybe if you're like me, you kind of have this idea of this God who is laid back and just kind of relaxing, speaking things into existence. But this word created is actually a word for work, right? For intensive work. I play drums, right? Y'all have probably seen me back there on a Sunday morning. And there is, there was, he passed away in 2016, there was a drum maker who elevated the craft of drum making beyond what it was. His name was Johnny Craviato. And drums are usually just super thin plies of wood that are glued together, like five to seven plies, and then made into a cylinder. And then, you know, when you hit a drum, air moves through it, 
and that's called, it creates resonance, and that's all a drum is. Well, that glue that goes in between those plies actually dampens or kills the resonance of a drum. So Johnny Craviato, he said, what if I could take a solid piece of wood, like a quarter inch thick, hardwood, oak, maple, these kind of things, and bend it to make a drum that's more resonant. And he spent years, decades, trying to get this right. Because once, if you can get that quarter-inch piece of wood into a perfect circle, it's going to fight and try to go out of round. And so then he had to figure out, okay, how do we keep it in this perfect circle? Okay, we need a way to reinforce it that's not going to kill it. So he spent years, and he finally did it. And these drums are incredible. I mean, they sing when you play them. They also cost about as much as a down payment on a house or a new car, so I will never play them, but you can hear a difference. My wife, who doesn't know anything about drums, I played her, I played them for her, again, not in person, but on YouTube, and she was like, whoa, those sound amazing. And so I share all this to say, man, when you hear this word, God created, for me, because I'm a drummer, the picture that I think of you know, just like, just the shadow of a picture is this guy, Johnny Craviato, who labored and was this expert craftsman and thought through and then um, executed on that idea to bring about these amazing drums. God created and he worked in that same manner. So in the beginning, then, God created. In the beginning, God was at work. And so we continue to see this work as we read through Genesis 1. And we see that, you know, there was a void that was before God. And God speaks and he brings order to that void. And he separates that void into realms, right? He creates the heavens and the sky and the sea and the earth. And then we see him fill those realms with sun, moon, stars, galaxies, right? And then we see him fill the sky with birds and the sea with fish and the earth with animals. And then we get to this point in creation where we see God thinking through the crown of his creation, man. And this is what he says. He says, let us make man, Genesis 1, 26, he says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Now, if we pause right there, right, like I said, forgetting the rest of this and just thinking to Genesis 1, 1 through 25, what do we know about God? That he's a God at work. That he's a God that's creating and laboring. And so then he goes on. And he says this, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So we are created in the image of a God at work. And we see that God's very intent for humanity would be that they labor and that they work. Right, he lays out the job description here. He will have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heavens, livestock, all the earth. 
right? So then we see this is God's idea and intent for man, and then we see him actually bring it into being. Genesis goes on to say this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God intends and then he creates. Genesis 2, 15 says it another way, right? So we see the creation account in Genesis 1. We see it in another way in Genesis 2. The point of these two chapters is God created, right? God made everything that we see. And we see that God creates this garden, and then he creates man, and then he puts man in this garden, and this is what he says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to relax and enjoy it. No. It says to work and to keep it. So we see God creates man in his image, and then he gives man, and when I say man, I mean man and woman, I, I mean humanity, right, mankind, and he gives man a mandate, and the mandate is to fill, to subdue, to work, to keep. God created a world that, though very good, right, we see him declare that. We see him take joy in his work and say that this is very good. That though he created this world, it's not fully developed. So then he gives man and woman, humanity, this mandate to partner with him to make what existed better. Now, this word subdue, it doesn't mean to use, to exploit, and to discard. Rather, the mandate that God gives is in the same manner that we see God just working, right? We see God create order and then fill that order. And that's what he's telling them, right? Fill and subdue, work and keep. Adam and Eve's mandate was to continue God's good work to partner with him to continue to bring order just as he brought order and to cultivate the raw resources of the garden where they were placed, where they were, their particular domain for the flourishing of the race that would come through them. So this then is the original intent of work. Is man's original intent that he would work and that he would partner with God to see the flourishing of the race that would come through them. So we flourish when we work because we were created for work. Right? We weren't created for leisure. We weren't created for this easy hands-off life. We were created in the image of a God at work to work. So when we work, it adds dignity to who we are because we are fulfilling God's mandate to humanity. Now, what went wrong, right? 
this is all good and this is all high and this is all lofty. But something went wrong. Right? Work now becomes perverted. It now is viewed as kind of the enemy. The fall. Remember, we were only in Genesis 1 and 2. And something happens in Genesis 3 that changes everything. We see God places man and woman in this garden and he says, work it and keep it and fill and subdue and cultivate and make better what I've created for humanity that will come through you. But mankind says, I want to be like you. I want to be my own God. So we disobeyed and we rebelled and that shifted everything. Sin entered the created order and fractured everything from our hearts to the ground that we walk on. And so when we rebel, God spoke out a curse. And this is what he says to man. He said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. So we see that at the fall, the work was created, um, though we were created for work. And the purpose and intention of work was to partner with God for human flourishing. When there was that rebellion and that disobedience, the shift took place. And two things happened. The first was there was a shift in the external circumstances. That the ground was now cursed and labor and work would be exhausting. Right? It would take a toll on our physical, emotional, mental. It would cause us to sweat. Right? And the second was that there was an internal shift that took place. That no longer was work about partnering with God for the flourishing of humanity. Now it becomes about us and we use work to feed our idols right work either becomes this idol or it becomes an escape how do I you know escape from the responsibilities of marriage or the responsibilities of parenting or we use work to fuel our idols of wealth status and power that's not the original intention for work it's not me centric what can I get how much can I make how much power can I garner from this right the original intention is to partner with God for human flourishing so though there is a shift and though there is an internal brokenness. There's good news. There's always good news, right, with Jesus. And the good news is that he now redeems work and offers a redemption in the way that we view work. We see in the life of Jesus, like I, I talked about earlier, <clears throat> this life that does not use his power and his privilege to further himself. 
but we see him. What did he say? He said, I came not to be served, but I came to serve. That he actually uses his power and his position and his privilege for the flourishment of others. And he knew there's one cardinal thing I have to deal with. And that's the separation and the sin between God and man. The unrighteousness between God and man. And I will lay down my life in order to bring about the flourishing of humanity. To close that gap, right? Just like we talked about in the catechism. To be the substitutionary atonement for mankind. So that all of that sin and all of that rebellion and all that was made wrong would be swallowed up in his death. And now his offer is eternal life, right? And flourishing for mankind. So the good news is that Jesus redeems. And if we are disciples, if we say that we follow him, then our call then is to submit every area of our life to him. Our marriage, our singleness, our parenting, our finances, and our work. So my challenge for us today as we look at this, right, is to one, elevate our view of work and say it's not about us. And that in and of itself is such good news. Because if work was just about us and what we can get from it, man, when we come to that day when we die, which we all will, all that we work for will be gone like that. If work is about power and wealth in this age, when we die, it's gone. But if we see work as a means to engage and partner with God in human flourishing, that carries through eternity. That carries through death. And so my challenge for us today is to shift the question that we have about work the question that we usually ask is, what will make me the most money and give me the most status? And I get it. That's, that is the culture and society that we are raised in. This individualistic, material society that says, get good grades and study hard so that you can pass this test, so that you can get into the next grade, so that you can get into the next school, so that you can get into a good college, so that you can get a good job so that you can get a good paycheck. And so when we're fed that our whole life, then we think, okay, my job is about me. It's about the money that I can attain and about the status and the power that I can attain. But what I'm presenting today is that we start asking a different question when it comes to our work. And the question is this, how with my existing abilities and opportunities so the unique things that God has given me the unique giftings and talents and strengths how can I be of greatest service to other people knowing what I do of God's will and of human need 
What I'm not saying is quit your job and go into ministry. Do not do that, please. Do not do that. But these last two words up here, human need, they're vast and they're varied, right? We have a need for shelter. So if you're in construction, if you're in housing, the question for you should not be, how much money can I make? It should be, how can I be of greatest service to other people? Right? We are made in a way that we need to eat. We need food and we need drink. And not just in a practical way. God gave us taste buds, right? And so it's not just this utility eat, but food can be enjoyable. And so if you're in the hospitality industry, if food, drink, your question should then be not what will make me the most money, but how can I be of greatest service to other people? We have a need for education. You know, our, our bodies are temporal. They break down, and, and, and we have a soul and emotional side. So if you are in healthcare, if you are a counselor, right, we're spiritual beings. So if you are a pastor, if, you're, if you are tending to that spiritual side, the question is not what will make me the most money and give me the most status, question is how can I be of greatest service to other people this covers the vastness of human needs right we have a human need for beauty so as artists the question isn't what will make me the most money it's how can I be of greatest service to other people in every sector in technology and finance man if you're a stay-at-home parent that's your question And the beauty is that this view adds so much dignity to that. Why? Because you, as a stay-at-home parent, are, I mean, your job all day, every day, is to meet the needs of little humans and keep them alive, right? When they're young, it's just don't let them get hurt, don't let them die. They don't know, so you have to watch out for them. So in all things, in all sectors of human need, which is vast and varied, this should be our question. Look, I don't have the silver bullet answer. There's not one answer to this question. And I think discipleship is both specific. uh, How do I want to say this? There are specific things to discipleship. That's why we see the disciplines. Right, that's why we see prayer and worship and fasting and giving. There's these tenets of discipleship and following Jesus. But then there's also this part that's very personalized. Each of Jesus' 12 disciples had different things that they were dealing with in their own heart. And so it is with us. So... What I'm saying today is not so much, I have the answer for you. Hey, I'm not in construction. I'm not in healthcare. I'm not in hospitality. I don't know the answer. But 
I do believe that if, if, if we start asking this question today, it may not be answered today, it may not be answered next week, it may not be answered in a month, but if we continue, if we plant this seed of prayer, I believe that God will be faithful to answer and open doors for us. And as this seed goes into our heart, that over years of asking and watering and shifting and repenting and coming back to this, that beautiful fruit will be born in our community. And this is dependence, right? See, when Jesus, we talked about, you know, his great commission to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And that was the last thing he told his disciples before he ascended. But he also told them another thing uh, earlier before he went to the cross. And he says, it'll be better that I leave because I'll send you the helper, the Holy Spirit, who will dwell with you and dwell in you and who will lead you into all truth. And so as we ask this question, I believe that Jesus will be faithful to answer and lead us and guide us. So as I close, what I want to do is just create space and create time to reflect and to repent. And maybe we've made life about not life, but specifically work. Maybe we've made work about us. Hey, maybe we haven't had, um, maybe we, maybe this is the first time we're thinking about this. Maybe we've leaned into that view, that individualistic view of work, that it's all about us. Maybe this is the first time this idea has been laid upon us. Or maybe we have viewed work as kind of an enemy, right? That work is keeping me from my family, that it's keeping me from leisure, that it's keeping me from my interests and my hobbies, and I just have to work so that I can get to them. But what I want us to do today, as we take time, as we reflect and Trevor, you can come on up as we close. Is I want us to begin, to even begin considering this question. So before communion, let's just take 30 seconds to a minute. And just ask the Holy Spirit to move in us. And to do his job of convicting of sin convicting of righteousness, right? And leading us into the into that question. So if we could keep Drew, if we could keep that question up on the screen. Let's just take time to consider this as I pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son Jesus who redeems all things. And I pray that as we reflect on this that you would help us that you would aid us. Holy Spirit, do your good work in us. Do your good work in us as we seek to follow Jesus.
going to transition to our time of communion. The night before Jesus died, he had a meal with his closest friends. And he told them what was about to happen. As they were eating the bread together, he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. As he was pouring wine for them, he said, this is my blood that will be shed and poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins to make all things new. So we want to weekly remember that. Remember that that is what defines us. Not how this past week went. Not defining our ourselves by our success or by our failure, but by what Jesus has done. And so we take this now, remembering this, remembering his good and perfect work. That his body was broken for us blood was shed for us.